So we have um, three readings today, two from Job and one in the New Testament. Um, The first one is in Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 15. Um, And this is when uh, God finally speaks to Job and um, speaks to him out of a storm. Job chapter 40, verse 1 to 15. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong passage. Job 38, 38, 1 to 15. I'm glad some of you noticed. Right, Job 38, 1 to 15. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obstructs my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place, that it may take that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Then we go to Job chapter forty, verses fifteen to twenty-four. And in this reading, God um, talks of um, what can only be described maybe as a a supernatural creature. Um, Job chapter 40, verse 15. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The The hills bring it their produce and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It's secure, though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are reminded of the great hope that we have in the resurrection. First Corinthians 
1554-58. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks, Tony. You had me a bit worried there when you started reading the passage. I was thinking, oh, what have I done? Um, but thank you, uh, and thanks for that lovely prayer as well. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. A couple of months ago when Dave said, can you uh, preach on God's response to Job? I thought, oh, yes, how good is that? And then I started reading and I went, wow, how profound is that? And then each week as we've studied Job and people have said, yeah, but that's what Job said, but wait till God says. And then they've said, here's what his friends say, but wait till what God... And everyone said, every time someone said, wait till you hear what God says, I'm sitting there going, oh man, the pressure. Because this is phenomenal. These four chapters we get from our Heavenly Father speaking to Job personally in pain, in anguish, in suffering. You all know what that's like. You have pain, you have anguish, you have suffering. And he speaks that to you today. And I, I feel the profound, the, the gravity of that and the responsibility as we come before that today. Because he does love you. And ultimately that's what he's saying to Job in these four chapters and we will peel them back but I pray you leave here today knowing that your heavenly father loves you in the midst of everything you're going through and he is with you so let's step back Uh, I'm going to start I usually start I, I feel like Dave I'm starting with a confession I love movies when I go to heaven right there is going to be a whopping big TV screen and I'm going to watch movies and it'll be so good. Uh, I find they're my way of just... I can turn my head off and watch and just go, how good's that? Um, And I especially love, and I'm sort of starting to miss this because with Netflix and that, there's more series, so they're short and sharp. I love longer movies, particularly where there's a really big monologue, yeah, where one of the main actors says something extended but quite profound that either explains what's gone before or gets you ready for the next bit and one of the the best monologues I reckon I've ever heard comes from this movie A Few Good Men. Uh, This morning the the music crew half of them went I don't even know what that is I'm like man you haven't even lived if you're sitting next to me in heaven that's what you're watching okay so suck it up um it's, it's got some great actors in it, Tom Cruise, uh, Demi Moore, uh, Jack Nicholson. So the, mo- so the story goes something like this. Tom Cruise is this US military lawyer, right? And there's these two guys who are on trial 
these two Marines for murdering a fellow Marine in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Now, they claim the story something like this. The, the Marine they murdered was a bit of a screw-up and in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, when you screw up, apparently your senior officers order the others to give you a code red. And that's code language for basically they beat you up so you pull your socks up. That's what these Marines said. They said, we were ordered a code red. Their senior officers said, there's no such thing as a code red. We never did it. And ultimately, the peak of the movie is when Jack Nicholson enters. He is Colonel William Jessup. And in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, he is God. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is arrogant and he bows to no man. And so you've got Tom Cruise has him in the witness stand. And this is the peak of the movie, so I'm going to ruin it for you, but, well, there you go. If you haven't watched it now, you're probably not going to anyway. Um, but Tom gets him in the witness box and, and, and Jessup goes, what do you want? And he says, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson says, you want the truth? He says, yeah, I, I think we deserve the truth. And then Jack Nicholson says that wonderful line that even if you haven't seen the movie, you'll know it, you can't handle the truth, yeah? And then he goes into this long monologue about how, um, how hard it is to provide security for the entire US, but that is what Guantanamo Bay, Cuba is there for. And he ends this big monologue with this. He says, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of freedom I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. And Tom Cruise comes back with a, did you order the code red? And Jack's counsel says, you don't have to answer that. And he says, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer. Did you order the code red? And of course, the arrogance of Jack Nicholson just pours through. And he says, you're damn right I did and I'd do it again tomorrow. And he signs his fate. He gets found guilty. He gets let out of the courtroom. And Tom Cruise wins the day again. Hoorah! Hey? <laughs> eh? Now you don't need to see the movie. <laughs> so today we come to God's monologue. We have had 37 chapters of a, a first two chapters full on story and then 34 chapters of toing and froing between Job and his mates and Job and his mates and then this Elihu young whippersnapper comes in and we think he's from God and it's been backward and forward and now today God speaks. Four chapters of God speaking. And I want to say, is that God's response? You can't handle the truth, Job. You can't handle the truth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wow you with four chapters of how good I am, how strong I am, and how smarter than you I am. And you need to just sit back and suck it up, Job. Is that what God's saying. I reckon a very quick reading of these chapters could lead you to think that. God's just saying how great his creation is. And you know what? You just need to put up with it. 
I want to say, if, if you're reading it that way, I can understand why, but I do think it is a very thin reading of God's word. There is such a depth to God's words today that we do have to step back and go, this is what it says, but what does God mean by that? Because there is a, a depth of meaning in these words that will help us move beyond that superficial reading to God is not saying that in that simplistic way. So where's the story up till now? If you've missed us for the last five weeks, I'm going to give you the book of Job in about 11 seconds. So Job's this man of integrity. He's lost everything. Kids dead, buildings collapsed, business bust. Wife's told him, you're a clown. Um, He's been stripped of everything he loves. And we know behind the scenes that God has allowed him to be stripped of everything he loves because God is showing Satan that that Job loves God simply for who God is, not what God gives him. Now, understandably, Job is absolutely distraught. He is devastated. And his friends have come in and they've given really unhelpful counsel. They've said, you're suffering... God is just, you must have sinned, you need to repent. Now Job's going, I ain't sinned, bro. I'm good before God and I'm suffering, therefore God is unjust. God is not right. And, and Job has said, I want my day in court with God. I want the opportunity to defend myself. When we experience pain, brothers and sisters, we do ask those questions, don't we? How is this fair? How is this just? God, what's going on? So today I want us to, in light of that, look at three things. I want to look at why does God speak? What does God say? And we'll see that God has two different monologues and we'll look at those briefly individually and then we'll look at what difference does Jesus make what does that mean for you and me as we sit here today so let's start with why does God speak now I want to start by saying that the three the four chapters we have here for God are in they are poetry they have a whole lot of metaphor operating throughout them much like Shakespeare poetry does and other types of poetry. And so we need to work hard to look at the meaning and the message behind it. And I reckon for us to start to do that, we need to think about why, why is he speaking? Why is God speaking? Now you will notice that the text that, God, that has two monologues. One starts in chapter 38. If you've got your Bible, it'd be great to have you open in front of you. I will throw some verses up on the screen there as well. But chapter 38 is the first monologue and then chapter 40 verse 6 is where the second monologue starts. Uh, At the beginning of each monologue what God does is he spins it, he flips the room, he actually brings a court charge in front of Job and says, Job you're guilty of something and then he says, let me show you whether it's true what you've said about me. So he flips it round. So who's the person in court? Not God, Job. So let's um, have a look at the first charge. If you have a look at chapter 38, verse 2, 
God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Now, you might have obscures my plans. Other people might have darkens my counsel. Who is this that calls into question how I rule the world? Job, you're questioning my governance of the world, how I order and operate the world. In effect, Job, you're saying I'm inept? Okay. If that's the charge, then let's look at how God answers Job. Now, I'm going to start and say, first of all, he answers him personally. He shows up in a whirlwind. Some of you might have in a storm. And he asks him 77 rhetorical questions. Now, he he asks these questions. I want to be clear. He is not there to humiliate Job. He is not there giving Job a backhander and going, how dare you, bro? How dare you? And giving him the, the Colonel William Jessup treatment. He's asking him these rhetorical questions because he wants him to seriously rethink what he thinks he knows about the world and what he thinks he knows about order to deepen his understanding. That's why we ask someone a rhetorical question. Because let's remember, this is the same God who looked down on the world and said, hey, Satan, look at this man. Look at this man. He loves me. The same God is not going to stand there in the midst of a guy who's lost his family, lost his business, lost his building, lost his relationships and go, how dare you? He's not going to do that. And he's not doing that to you, brothers and sisters, in in your brokenness. When you pour out your heart to him, he's not going, how dare you? He's wanting to say, I love you. And I want you to understand at a deeper level how much I love you. So he asks him these rhetorical questions because he wants to deepen his understanding. Job asks, what's going on, God? And I reckon God metaphorically reaches out of that whirlwind and he takes him by the hand. And he says, take a deep breath. Put your thinking cap on because I'm going to show you. So let's go to what God actually says. Chapter 38. Let's start with verses 4 to 7. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. This is God's ordered building project, isn't it? There's a whole lot of building talk here, foundations, dimensions, a measuring line, footings, a cornerstone. I'm not a builder, but I assume that's how you build a building. God is saying, Job, this world is ordered. It is planned. And I have the plans. I have the plans. And what's the outcome? What's the effect of it? Well, we're told that the heavenly hosts are joyful. I reckon angels would get to see some pretty cool stuff, don't you think? And so I reckon they wouldn't be easily amazed. But what's the effect of the creation here? They're shouting for joy. They're going, how good is that? Wow! 
I pray that's what we're doing, not just going, oh yeah, God created the world. Angels are shouting for joy at the order that there is and the goodness there is. Now maybe Job stands back and maybe you're standing back and going, I don't know, God, I've got a different angle on it. It's not so joyful for me. It's not so joyful. I reckon God's hearing that. And he goes into verse 8 to 11 where he said, Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and I wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. God is gently and lovingly starting to enter into the equation the challenge of life. Now, a simple reading of this text probably goes, oh, yeah, God's saying he, he made the oceans, he sort of controls where they come and go, I wonder what, he, wonder what happens when a tsunami happens. You know, we're taking it at a superficial level. We need to remember that back then, the ocean was a place of great danger. It was where chaos resided. It was where evil came from. Now, I reckon I read that in all commentaries and then I go, it's still a pretty scary place, the ocean. You go for a swim at, at um, Shelley Beach, one minute you're having fun, how long is it before you're in a rip and you are terrified? The ocean is a scary, scary place. But notice out of these six verses, oh, sorry, these four verses, half of them are about God's control of it. <laughs> But look at the metaphor God uses for the ocean. It's a baby. It's an infant. It's been birthed. The clouds are its nappy. God wraps it in a swaddling cloth. God treats it like a child. And what does he do? What do parents do? Hopefully we do. I do sometimes. We set boundaries. God has set boundaries for the ocean, much like a parent would. You can go out till this time, but then you've got to be home. God says, you can go this far, but you go no further. Where did we hear that before? When God was talking to Satan in heaven. You may hurt Job this far, but you go no further. God is starting to explain the presence and the problem of evilness and brokenness in our world. And he does it gently and slowly continuing through this chapter until the second speech where we meet evil head on. I was trained as a trauma therapist early on in my career as a psychologist and I was given this great metaphor that when we're working with people in their trauma, uh, that trauma is like a, a dirty, dark lake that sits in the middle of people's consciousness and they are that terrified of it that they can't take their eyes off it. And it's at the centre of everything. And our job as therapists was to get people to walk away from the lake, to take a, a long bushwalk a long way away from the lake, to take their eyes off it, to build their strength up and then perhaps to get them to think about the lake. Don't look at it, just think about it. Yeah? And then maybe you get them to visualise it as they're getting stronger and stronger. And as you bring them, as you're doing that, you're bringing them closer and closer to that dirty, dark lake. So eventually they might even consider looking into it. Or they might look into it. Or they may even dip their toe into it. And what you're doing is you're stealing the strength of that traumatic vision. 
I reckon God is the greatest counsellor of all. And what he is stealing is he is stealing the power of evil and the fear of evil for Job. Let's hold on to that as we keep moving forward. Verses 12 to 15, God now says, Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arms are broken. So in this section, God's entered in light and dark. Good metaphor for good and evil, isn't it? Notice when the light rises in the morning, verse 13, what happens? It shakes the wickedness out of the world. It's in the darkness that sin and evil reside, isn't it? It's in the dark room where sexual sin happens. The thief breaks in at night. I reckon here God is saying, I can hold back the evil and I choose to banish it every morning. When the sun rises, I shake the evil out of the world. And I'd also contest that God is also making the point that there will be a day when evil will be destroyed forever. Have a look at that last verse. The wicked will be denied their light and their upraised arms will be broken. You know when you come out of a movie theatre and the light's really strong, you go do that? That's the upraised arms. God will break that of the evil one. God is saying, Job, evil has a place for my purposes now, but I control it. It is limited, but one day it won't. Now, maybe Job says, yeah, but what about death, God? Surely you don't control that. Let's go to the next lot of verses. Have you journeyed the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth or the underworld? Tell me if you know all this. Notice here God is talking about the place of the dead. Back in that day, the place of the dead was found at the bottom of the ocean. Job, have you been? to the realm of the dead you haven't but guess what i have and i own it and i control it it's not out of my control i'm fully aware of it for much of the rest of chapter 38 god speaks about water and and he uses in many different forms he talks about the life-giving rain and dew But he also talks about the life taking frosts and hail. And God says, I've seen them all. And I think, in effect, what he's saying is, you can't credit me with times when you experience life-giving rain without also acknowledging I'm I'm the one from whom the death-dealing frosts come. I'm in control of both of those. Now, in case we're now going, okay, so God's some sort of majestic conductor of a big orchestra from a long way away, God takes our hand and says, let's have a look at the animate creation. Let's look at the living, breathing creation. Come with me to chapter 39, verses 1 to 2. 
God says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? So here we see God's beautiful and intimate care for some wild goat off on some far-flung mountain. You notice it there? Can you number the months? In other words, what God's saying is, do you count the days in anticipation when they give birth? Recently, our our brother and friend here, Josh Mason and Hannah Mason, they had their little baby girl, their third girl, Josephine Diane. Isn't she beautiful? Very photogenic family, aren't they? Um, But I was working with Meso before he left. And he didn't do it too much, but a few times he said to me, oh, month's time, hands due to give birth, and two weeks' time, hands due to give birth, and one week time. We understand that, don't we? He's a dad, he's proud, it's beautiful. That's what we'd expect. Have a look here. That's what God does. That's what God does with mountain goats. He counts the days of their birth. That's how much they matter to him. You reckon he's not saying to Job, guess how much you matter to me? Guess how much you matter to me? Is that not what he's saying to you? This verse tells us that God, what God does for the mountain goat and all of his creation. He cares. He remembers their birth days. That's important to us, isn't it? People remembering our birth days. A God who tenderly cares for his creation. Across this chapter, we hear of God's total control, care, love, direction for his animate creation. And they're all the wild animals. They're not your farmyard follies. You're not going to see them at the Westpac Petting Zoo at, uh, at the Royal Easter Show. These are the wild ones. And God says, I control them, I love them too. The last animal he talks about is a bird of prey. Let's go to that animal now. Verse 27. Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff. It stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food and its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood and where the slain are, there it is. So God commands the eagle to soar on high. What's the eagle do up there? Well, it finds its home, absolutely, yep. But it also sees its prey. And it gets its prey and it kills it and its young ones feast on blood. God commands that. You see, I think the point God is making is that birth and death Birth in verse 1, death in chapter 30. They, they're intertwined in this world. It's, it's not some meaningless circle of life. It's not an Elton John song because that's random chance. God is sovereign and in control of it all. And he's making the point that this, this worth, this world, is there's a paradoxical balance on the good earth where without death there is no life and life relies on death at the moment at the moment 
in this creation. It's a, a mega ecosystem. But when we say ecosystem, our world goes, oh, it's interdependent, right? No, this is a mega ecosystem that's fully dependent on God. Full stop. No one else. So God's conclusion to the question, am I inept, Job? Or sorry, Job's response. Let's have a look at chapter 40, verse 4. The second half of verse 4. What's Job's response? I put my hand over my mouth. I've got nothing to say, God. I pray you're all smacked as you sit there as well. Not in a way of, oh, I shouldn't have said, but wow. For us, the struggle is hard, brothers and sisters. I know that as much as you. I know many of your pains and your griefs and your sorrows. And it's heavy, isn't it? We heard two wonderful testimonies before from two ladies who were very strong ladies, but they're strong in the spirit. When we hit hard times, we often try to do it ourselves, don't we? I'll go out alone. I won't tell anyone. I'll be right. God's with me. But I go, I'm right, God. The first principle of Celebrate Recovery is realise I'm not God. Why? Because that is the beginning of change. When I realise I am not God, God is God. That's where it frees me up to live the life that he wants for me. Celebrate Recovery is a great gift to many and I encourage you to consider coming along. We will have an information night in February and we'll have some posters up with QR codes for you to look into that or you could have a chat to Karen, Tony or myself or one of the ladies who shared their testimony before. So let's go back and have a look at God's second speech. Starts in chapter 40. What does God charge Job with? Verse 8. He says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? to justify yourself. I reckon that's an easier one to understand. God accuses God Job accuses God of being unjust. He says, "God, you are unjust." God, what about the evil in the world? Where is the justice? Where is the cosmic justice? In response to this, God describes two creatures, chapter 40 and chapter 41. Behemoth and Leviathan. I want to say here, this speech is building to a climax like any monologue. It is building, building. With, it's crescendoed, but it's going to go even further because it's God who's speaking. Some commentators say Behemoth is a hippopotamus and Leviathan is a crocodile. And I respectfully say, I don't think that adds anything to what God's already said. And God is not someone who's just going to repeat himself for the sake of it. I do, accidentally, because I forget I said it. God doesn't do that. God's not rehashing what has already gone before it. He has made his point about his seen creation. He's now going to talk about the unseen. What God has done is he's finished, finished drawing Job around that dirty, dark lake that I talked about that pool of chaos and he's got him right next to it and now he invites him to look directly into it. He's inviting him 
to come face to face with evil, death and Satan. So let's tackle Behemoth first. There's an artist's rendition of Behemoth. Looks pretty scary to me. A creature that one way or another, I believe, signifies death. We heard it before. Behemoth is described as the most powerful of God's works. He is a massive creature that feeds on grass. That doesn't scare me initially. What it's saying is he has an insatiable appetite. Do you know that elephants eat 18 hours a day? An animal that size is not going to stop eating all day if it eats grass. It will keep eating, it will never be satiated. What else? It's always nearby. It lies in wait. It cannot be moved even by the mighty power of the Jordan in full flow. If nothing else, what we're getting here is a picture of a hungry, powerful mega beast. And then Leviathan. To make the case that Leviathan is Satan is a relatively easy one. When we look at the biblical evidence, Satan, the serpent, Leviathan, the dragon... I'm not going to go through it now, but you could chase it down later. Job talks about it in Job 3 verse 8, in Isaiah 27 verse 1, in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, they all mention this creature. We get 36 verses on Leviathan. Why? Because we are meant to grasp how purely evil and scary Leviathan is. How about I just have a read of verses 13 to 18. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armour? Who dares open the door of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has row of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between them. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together. They cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Scary scary isn't it but notice what God does to both of them he tames them he catches them he puts them on a leash he treats them like a pet and then ultimately he kills them chapter 40 verse 19 the maker its maker approaches it with the sword God is saying, Job, the world is a dangerous place. Wickedness exists, but I control that too. I can and I do rein it in, which is exactly what we've seen in Job's life, haven't we? Satan wanted to do more, but God said no. God reined him in. He said, no, you won't. More importantly, one day there will be a reckoning where death and Satan will be dealt with. Martin Luther, controversially, once said, even the devil is God's devil. Whilst this chapter is about Satan, it is even more about God's sovereign power over Satan and his ultimate defeat of him. Chapter 41, verse 34, the end of God's speech. Leviathan, 
is described as king over all that are proud. Isn't that the base of all our sin, pride? Earlier on in God, and we didn't read it before, in God's rhetorical question at the beginning of chapter 40 in verse 11, God had asked Job, are you able to look at all who are proud and humble? Uh, Sorry, are you able to look at all who are proud and can you humble them and crush them where they stand? The answer to that rhetorical question, no, you can't, but I can and I will. What is God saying to Job? What is God saying to us through these chapters? We are meant to realise that the natural order, there's a parallel moral order in the universe. And much of both of those orders are beyond our understanding. Some of it seems hideous. Some of it seems futile, like the ostrich. Other bits of it are fearsome. But all of it is the work of the wise, loving, knowing God who made the world this way for his own purposes. That's what he's saying. Now, in his response, God doesn't recount the heavenly conversation where he says, you know, yeah, yeah, oh, well, Job, you know, me and Satan were sitting in heaven one day and Satan and I said, hey, look at this guy and Satan said, and I went, okay, this is what we'll do. And some people go, oh, so he didn't really answer Job's question. Because he could have easily done that, couldn't he? He could have easily said that. I suppose my, my thoughts are, what would answering the question in that simple way do? I reckon it would just raise more questions. God, what was Satan doing in heaven? God, why, why, why did you do that? Why? 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 I reckon answering in that really simplistic way would have just led to more why questions. Some people reading Job come away feeling frustrated, saying he didn't answer Job's question. I pray that we can now see that he has done so in a profound way. But the question we need to ask is, was Job disappointed? Or was Job frustrated with God's response? Because Job's been a pretty honest fellow up till now and I don't think he's going to pull back. So let's have a look, chapter 42, verses 2 to 6. This is Job's response to God's two speeches. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes, now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job has gone from show yourself, Lord, to now I see you. He has given Job what he's asked for. I reckon this is because what God does is he answers Job's question in a way that doesn't lead to other why questions. 
but rather in a way that fully satisfies Job's longing. Job enters that conversation with a why question and he leaves the conversation with a wow statement. Now my eyes have seen. And what does that do? It leads him to repentance. He says, in my impatience, in my ignorance, in my bitterness, I was wrong. I was a fool. I'm turning away from that. In closing, I want us to to briefly think about what does Jesus add to the mix? Because what what does it mean for us? Because we're in a different spot to Job, aren't we? Heaps different to Job. We don't have... um, dung pile or ashes to to sit on and we don't cut ourselves with pottery but more than that we know of Jesus we know what he's done we know that he fulfills the promises of God here in his speech particularly about his defeat of the evil and defeat of Satan and the end of death when Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world and three days later he rose from the dead He showed that he was the man from chapter 38, verse 13, who not only shook the evil out of this world for one day, but he's done it totally. He has defeated death. And in chapter 38, verse 17, Jesus not only went to the gates of hell, but he went there and he removed its sting. And in chapter 40, who is the one that crushes the wicked one where he stands? None other than King Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. And one day he will come again, the book of Revelation tells us. And this time, death and Satan will be vanquished forever. It will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then it is at that time, brothers and sisters, where we are promised by our Heavenly Father that at that time there will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be no more mourning and no more suffering for any of us. How should this wonderful, and I say wonderful as such an insipid word, how should this magnanimous information, how should it affect us? A fellow in the 1600s, Richard Baxter, who was a pastor with a great heart, he said this, and I pulled it apart because I think it's worth us thinking about, He said, oh, that Christians would learn to live with one eye on Christ crucified and the other on his coming in glory. If everlasting joys were more in your thoughts, spiritual joys would abound more in your hearts. No wonder you are comfortless when heaven is forgotten. When Christians let fall their heavenly expectations but heighten their earthly desires, they are preparing themselves for fear and for trouble. Who has ever met with a distressed, complaining soul where either a low expectation of heavenly blessings or too high a hope for joy on this earth is not present? What keeps us under trouble is either we do not expect what God has promised or we expect what he did not promise. What did Jesus promise? 
John 16, verse 33, he said to his closest friends and he's saying to you and me here today, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Do you want peace, brothers and sisters? Well, listen to Christ's word. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Jesus did not promise that life would be easy. But he did promise, he did promise that he has overcome the world. So in the midst of that, we need not fear. We need not lose hope. Jesus is the great defeater of behemoth and Leviathan. He is the one who will deny the wicked then light and he will break the upraised arm. As Paul encourages the Corinthian church, so I pray it's an encouragement to each one of us today. When he said, stand firm. Let nothing move us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. In our pain and our sorrow, if we have strayed from his love, then like Job, let us repent. Let us turn back. And then by his power, let us show endurance in discipleship in the midst of our own suffering and pain. Will you pray with me, brothers and sisters? Father God, I thank you for your word to us today. I thank you throughout it of that reminder of your majestic power your sovereignty. And thank you, Father, that in the midst of all of that good plan, that you are working it towards your ends. And in the midst of that divine plan for this world, you've stooped low enough to show love for each one of us. As you've called us out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, thank you, Father, that you have not forgotten, you have not forsaken us. Father, for the times that, like Job, we've become impatient with your plans, Father, we repent. Father, we would ask that in our suffering you would give us patient perseverance to walk in this challenging world. Father, by your Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with the love of Christ and what he has done for us and what he will ultimately achieve as we long for the day he comes back. Amid the brokenness and the turmoil, Father, help us to reach out to others with the only hope there is, the hope of the gospel. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.